So the word of God this morning comes from uh, the book of John, chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. You can find it in your pew Bibles. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it, you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, You are the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen, and his works have been carried out in God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be be to God. God. If you have little ones first grade and under, now would be a good time for them to go across the way with Miss Brittany to children's worship and nursery. So how do we even begin with a biblical narrative like John chapter 3? This chapter is, uh, includes one of the most quoted Bible verses in the world. This chapter includes one of Jesus' most memorable interactions in the Gospels. This chapter has been dramatized uh, and retold by so many storytellers and filmmakers. So, how to start? Where to go? I think we need to go deep, and then we need to go wide. 
first deep. There, there's a lot of theological depth in this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. This chapter is not well known because of its characters and its drama. It's two guys in the dark who are talking. This chapter is well known because of what it reveals about God and about God's plans through Jesus. So we need to explore the deep theological truths in this text, and that's what we're going to do today. But next week, we're going to go wide. We're going to take the deep theological truths from this text, and we're going to attempt to apply it across the wide spectrum of everyone in this room. So if we're going to pull this off, if we're going to succeed at this deep theological and wide applicatory work, you're going to have to be a part of this. It means you've got to come back next week. Sorry, Doug. You're going to have to drive all the way back uh, next Sunday uh, and, and others who are visiting with us. But, of course, Doug and Sue in particular. Um, so you've got to come back next week. Doug and Sue are astonished, and all, none of you are laughing because you don't realize I'm talking to Ian's parents who came into town this weekend, regardless. So you've got to come back next week, but you've also got to be personally engaged today, plugged in, listening, chewing, and applying this difficult text to yourself. I'm going to need your help. So with that in mind, let's go deep, and let's begin with a key theological premise to be found in this text. If you like to take notes, here's the first blank in the back of your worship guide. There's some space there. You can fill in this first blank, this key theological premise. Whether people believe in Jesus is rooted in their nature, affections, and motives. Whether people believe in Jesus is rooted in their nature, affections, and motives. Have you ever wondered why one person hears the gospel of Jesus and believes, and another person hears the gospel and they don't believe? John chapter 3 helps us to understand why. Whether a person believes in Jesus or not has to do with that person's nature, affections, and motives. So in John 3, we meet Nicodemus, who is, according to verse 1, not only a Pharisee, but also a ruler of the Jews. Now, this is the second time in John's gospel that we've stumbled across the Pharisees, and we're going to see them again. Who are these guys? Here's the easiest way I've found to remember it. The Pharisees were the conservatives of their day. So Israel was inhabited by the Romans. They were being lorded over by the Roman Empire. And Roman society had a liberalizing effect on the people of Israel. It had a liberalizing effect on them morally and ethically. It had a liberalizing effect on them socially. And the younger generations of Israel were starting to look more Roman than they were looking Jewish. The Pharisees saw what was happening to their people, to their home, and they wanted to uh, counteract that. They wanted to preserve the religious and cultural heritage of their people in the face of Roman occupation. I think we can appreciate this impulse that the Pharisees have. So when the Pharisees hear that there's this popular new rabbi on the scene, they want to check him out. I mean, if there was another Presbyterian church in town being planted, I'd want to meet their pastor, you know, take him out for a cup of coffee, get to know him, see if our, our aims and our desires line up. So Nicodemus a Pharisee, comes to Jesus, no doubt out of curiosity, mixed with concern. Because he's a Pharisee. He cares about his people. But Nicodemus is also a ruler of the Jews. So he does have something to lose here. If Jesus is a revolutionary, he could be a threat to Nicodemus's position and prestige. 
And if he's a, a cultural or theological liberal, that would be a threat to his people as well. He's a lot to be concerned about. So under the dark of night, Nicodemus goes to find out just who this Jesus guy really is. Look at verses 1 and 2 in our chapter. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus makes a statement, but it's really a question. He says, Rabbi, we, the Pharisees and the rulers of Israel, we we know that you are a teacher from God. Otherwise, you couldn't do these miracles. It sounds like a statement, but it's really a question with a healthy helping of suspicion. If the Pharisees and the leaders of Israel really thought he was from God, where would they be? Right there with Nicodemus. They would have come to him to hear from God. That's not really what they believe. So with this statement, Nicodemus is asking a question. He's saying, who are you? Where'd you come from? Where'd you get this message that you've got? What's your angle? What's your agenda? Now, this is what we would expect from a Pharisee or a ruler, let alone a man who is both. And how does Jesus respond to this not a question about his identity? Look at verse 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus knows that Nicodemus is really asking a question. And John, the author of our gospel, knows that Nicodemus is really asking a question because the text says Jesus answered him. But his answer doesn't sound like an answer, does it? So Jesus is playing this game with Nicodemus. Nicodemus asks a question without asking it, and Jesus answers the question without answering it. Jesus says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What does that have to do with whether or not Jesus is a teacher from God? How does that answer a question about Jesus' identity? Well, think about what Nicodemus said. Nicodemus told Jesus, we know that you are a teacher from God. So Jesus then responds with a truth that he could only know if he was from God. You won't see the kingdom of God unless the kingdom of heaven, unless you have been born again. Jesus is giving him insider information. Basically, Jesus is saying, you say I'm from God. I'll tell you this, you will never get to God. You'll never enter the kingdom that I've come from unless you are born again. Jesus speaks with great authority because he is a teacher from God. Nicodemus' response to this hard word, this difficult truth, has been interpreted in in, in many different ways. I know that many of you have watched the the TV show The Chosen. Um, I'm actually working. This has taken too long. I'm working on an essay that I intend to, to give to the congregation, asking the question, is it okay to watch The Chosen? We, Todd jo- joked about it a little bit when he was preaching. Um, in The Chosen, I think they, they did a poor job with Nicodemus. As endearing of a character as he was, I don't think Nicodemus's response to Jesus is a response of faith. Nicodemus, <laughs> Nicodemus is a grown man. He's a Pharisee. He's a philosopher 
of his age. He's a thinker and he's a ruler, which means that Nicodemus understands the world. He understands business. He's no idiot. Given all that, what Nicodemus says to Jesus in verse 4, I can't read it as anything but pure sarcasm. So Jesus says, unless you're born again, you cannot even see the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says in verse, or Nicodemus says in verse 4, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Nicodemus comes to this supposedly great teacher, Jesus, the one that everybody's talking about. And this is what he gets. Unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Come on. Tell me, great Jesus. How's a grown man like me going to be born again? I got to climb back inside of my mother and be born again. Come on. You're going to roll with the big boys like the Pharisees. You're going to hang around with rabbis like me. You got to come up with something better than that. Jesus ignores his ridiculous response and drives his divinely received point home because he is a teacher from God. Look at verse 5. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it is going, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus' response to unbelieving Nicodemus is a remarkable statement about human nature. Jesus says, in effect, every human being is born into this world in one state. What is born of flesh is flesh. And they need to be born into a different state if they are to see God. If you were born only of your parents, only of flesh, you will not enter the kingdom of God. You won't even see it. Your nature as one born of flesh will not allow it. You need a different nature than the one you were born with. You have to be born not just of flesh. You have to be born again. Or stated another way, born of the water and spirit. Now to Nicodemus, this had to be immensely offensive. Why? He's a Jew. He was born of the flesh into the people of God. What do you mean his nature needs to change? What do you mean he won't even see the kingdom of God? He's a ruler among God's people. He's a a conservative who cares about the moral fiber of God's people. He's a covenant child. Here's the deep theological truth that Jesus is communicating about my nature, your nature, the nature of Nicodemus, and indeed of every human being. It's the next two blanks in your worship guide. By nature, every person is spiritually dead. By nature, every person is spiritually dead and incapable of seeing God's eternal kingdom. We are dead and incapable of even seeing God's eternal kingdom. The next point is that regardless of our birth parents or our community, regardless of our birth parents or our community, each individual person must be regenerated. Every individual person must be given new life by the Holy Spirit. And if that does not happen, you will not enter the kingdom of God. You will not even see it. Look again at verses 7 and 8. 
Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, there's an interesting word play at hand in this verse. Specifically, in the original language, the word for spirit can also be translated wind. So the question is, in verse 8, well, which thing is Jesus talking about? Is he talking about the wind going wherever it wants, or is he talking about the Holy Spirit going and doing whatever he wants? Well, my answer is yes. He's making a comparison between the two of them. Jesus says the Holy Spirit is like the wind. You can't see him. I mean, they, they thought we were going to have tornadoes this week. They thought they knew exactly where the wind was going. It did not go where they thought it was going. You can't see where it's coming from. You can't see where it's going. But what you can see is its effects. You can hear the wind. You can see the effects of the wind. And when the Spirit does something in a person, you don't know where it came from. You don't know where he's headed. But you see the effects when the Spirit is at work. How does verse 8 end? So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus says people who are born of the Spirit are just different from the people around them. Something weird, something strange has happened inside of them. We can see that something has changed in them. We can see the effects of it. We may not know where that came from, and we may not know where it's headed, but we can see the effects. Let's put all this together. When you're born on this planet, you were born spiritually dead. Jew, Gentile, Presbyterian, Catholic, Baptist, it doesn't matter. Even if you're born into the covenant community, like Nicodemus, he was a Jew. You still have to be born again. Paul says the same thing in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Later in the same chapter, he says, by nature, we are children of wrath. When we are born into this world, from the moment we take our first breath, we are spiritually deficient to the point of being spiritually dead. There is no human being besides Jesus who is ever born into this world innocent, good, predisposed toward goodness, or inevitably saved. No. We are all born with the nature of Adam, our first father. And we are predisposed towards sin and selfishness, and we are culpable for sin on the day that we are born. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And unless one is born again, they will not enter. No, they will not even see the kingdom of God. The Holy Spirit has to do something that makes this dead man alive. Me. Or I will not see the kingdom of God. Unless the Spirit makes me different from how I was born, I cannot enter or see his kingdom. Well, the natural response to this bad news is not unlike Nicodemus's. Well, what do I do then? How can I be born again? What can I do? Kids, let me ask you a question. Let me see all the kids' faces. It's a hard question. JJ, you can't answer because we talked about it the other night. What can a dead man do? What do you think, Isaac? What can a dead man do? Any idea? Joe, what do you think? A dead man? No, a dead man can't, can't pray. We actually saw that in a verse earlier. A dead man, there's no praise coming from the dead. All right, Joe, guess. What, what, what else do you think? What can a dead man do? 
What do you think, Madeline? Get a lot of silence. There is something a dead man can do. Well, all right, Joe's got an idea. What, what can a dead man do, Joe? He can do nothing, but there is one thing he can do. You got it, Mike. Stink. That's all a dead man can do is decompose and stink. We cannot change our nature. I cannot change me any more than I can change my wife, any more than I can change my kids, any more than I can change any of you. We are unable in and of ourselves to bring life to death. Only the Holy Spirit can make a dead man live again. And he does it according to his will. Whether we believe in Jesus or not is rooted in our nature. And left to ourselves, we won't believe. We need the intervention of God in our lives. But that's not the only factor in whether a person believes. Whether people believe in Jesus is rooted in our nature and our affections. So if our nature is broken, if we have inherited a spiritually dead state from Adam, then we are bound to love the wrong things. And to love in the wrong ways. Our spiritual death will be reflected in messed up desires. And as a result, we don't believe in Jesus. Whether we believe or not, it's rooted not only in our nature, but also our affections. Here's the next blank in your worship guide. People will not believe in Jesus because they love their evil deeds and don't want to lose them. Tons of people, all of us, we don't believe in Jesus because we love our evil deeds and we don't want to. To lose them. Look at verses 18 and 19. Whoever believes in him, that is Jesus, is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their, de- their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Y'all have heard me say this before, but as a general rule, I've met very few people that don't believe in Jesus because of philosophical arguments against God, against the resurrection. I'm just not convinced that I've ever met a person that is that philosophically objective. What's much more ordinary is that people have patterns of living and behavior that they just love too much and they don't want to stop. They enjoy their life. They don't care that God says that's not the way to live. They, don't, they like their life. They love it. And they don't want to change. They want to live that way. Jesus says people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. It's very simple. If that's the case, if people won't believe in Jesus because they love their way of life, they love their deeds, what could possibly compel them to turn from their sin to God? Well, again, first, the Holy Spirit. If he regenerates their hearts, they will begin to live and to love differently. Something is going to be weird and different about them. They're going to believe in Jesus. But we have no control over that. And how the Spirit works is largely a mystery. But we understand love. Why do people who love their evil deeds turn away from those deeds and turn to Jesus? Here's your next blank. People believe in Jesus because they hear of the mercies of God. And they give themselves over to him in allegiant faith. 
Why do they turn from their sin to God? Because they hear that he is a merciful God who loves us and they flee to him in allegiant faith. Paul says it in Romans chapter 2. The same thing that Jesus says here. What could compel a person to repent? To turn to Jesus away from sin. Paul says it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And what is it that Jesus says here can pull a person away from the sin that they love so much? God so loved the world. What is this world that God loves? The Greek word cosmos. Cosmos can be translated a lot of different ways. It can mean the planet. It can mean humanity. It can mean the whole created order from top to bottom, stars and plants and fish. We've all heard John 3.16 preach in a way that says this means every single person, that God loves every single person on the planet so much that he gave his son to die efficaciously for all of them. What does Jesus mean when he says God so loved the world? This Greek word for world, cosmos, is used 105 times between the Gospel of John and John's three later letters in the New Testament. And the overwhelming meaning of cosmos is this. It's your next blank. The the world, or cosmos, in John's writings is depicted as a territory and community of traitorous enemies. It's an enemy camp. So it's a territory and a community of traitorous enemies. It is a source, is the next part of that, a source of opposition. That's the world. Those who oppose Jesus, traitorous enemies to God, But what is it that's different about these folks? He wants to redeem a people out of that world. So when it says that God loves the world, we could restate it. God loves his enemies. And he loves the world where they live. Let's look at a handful of examples in your worship guide. Mary Frances was very gracious and printed a bunch of these verses to kind of give you a a, a panorama of how John uses this word world in his writings. We're just going to read them. It's a bunch of them, so you want to follow along. John chapter 1. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. John 3. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. John chapter 8, Jesus said to them, You are from below, I am from above, you are of this world, I am not of this world. John 12, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Later in John 12, he says, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. John 13, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. John 15, Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world Hates you. You see this definition forming, right? John 16. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Continuing in John 17. Jesus speaking to the Father. As you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them, my disciples, 
into the world. Now, 1 John 2. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. 1 John 2.15. This, one, this one's great in contrast with John 3.16. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. In 1 John 4, we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. What is this world? What is this cosmos that God loves? The world is the place where Satan once ruled and people were under his sway. It's enemy territory filled with opposers who hate God and love evil, who hate God's people and oppose the truth. God loves them. He loves those people. He loves that place. We don't love our enemies. We want to destroy our enemies. You see it in the world today. We don't pray for our enemies and sacrifice ourselves for our enemies, but that is what God does. He loves traitors so much that he would send his son to die as a propitiation for their sins. This is mercy for you, for me. Remember, what is mercy? It's the next blank in your worship guide. Mercy is when God does not give us what we deserve for our sins. Mercy is when God does not give us what we deserve for our sins. And what do the enemies of God deserve? What's the price for treason in the United States of America? Death. That's right. We don't get that. Jesus dies on the behalf of enemies of God so that we might not just get a pass through death, we get the total opposite. We get eternal life through Christ. God's enemies may receive eternal life. Look at verses 16 through 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. This message, this love, this mercy, that can draw a man, a woman, a boy, a girl away from the darkness that they love because this is a mercy so powerful, so beautiful. There is no story told that is better And more beautiful than this one, God gave his son. God chose to die for people, creatures, who had rebelled against him. Why do people believe in Jesus? Because they hear this message that God cares for them. That God loves this broken world and that he paid their punishment for sin. And they need only to believe. Yes, they deserve death and hell, but Christ has endured it on their behalf so that they might be saved. People believe in Jesus because they hear of the mercies of God. But what does it mean to believe in Jesus? What is this faith? Let's look back a couple verses. Verses 14 and 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him 
may have eternal life. So this mention of Moses is from the Old Testament book of Numbers. It's one of my favorites. Um, but So Israel is wandering. Um, they, they've been saved from slavery in Egypt, and they're out in the wilderness. It's 40 years of wandering, and after 40 years in the desert, there's a lot of griping that's going on. At, at every t- Even though God is giving them everything they need, Israel, rather than being grateful, is complaining over and over and over. What is this food you're giving us? It's trash, you know? God responded to their groaning. God responded to their sin and to their rebellion, and he didn't respond with mercy. He responded with justice. Like we said, the the punishment for treason is death. And so God sent a horde of poisonous snakes into the camp. So people were dying in mass. Left and right, people were being bitten and people were dying uh, in the camp of Israel because the cost of treason is death. This was a just end for them. But then God told Moses to go get the standard of Israel, the pole on which their flag or banner would be hung in battle. And rather than putting the standard of Israel to put a bronze snake on it. Weird, right? And he says, everyone who's bitten by a snake... If they will run to this snake, if they will look to the standard, to this pole with a snake on it, they'll be healed. What? Think about this. In ancient times, I know you boys like war. Here's your, here's your war story. In ancient times, uh, if, a person, if two armies were fighting and a person wanted to defect, they wanted to abandon the army they were in and join the opposing force. Or, if a city is being invaded by an army, and one of the civilians in that city wanted to join their attackers, they wanted to uh, defect to their attackers, among merciful armies, there was an option to defect. And what was the option? To flee to their opponent's standard, to flee to their flag, and to drop to their knees before the banner of their invader, to give themselves over to the mercy of the invading army. You see where I'm going with this? Jesus is saying, I'm invading enemy territory, and you are all going to die. You're condemned already. But if you will come to me, if you will drop to your knees and accept me as your new Lord and King, you will be spared not only of your treasonous verdict, you'll be healed of the toxin in your veins. If you will come to me in faith, if you will pledge allegiance to me and to my kingdom, you will be saved from the wrath of God. You will not die forever. You will live forever. If a person hears this good news of God's mercy, and if they will flee from the kingdom of this world, if they will reject the rulers of this world, and indeed their own rulership of their life, if they will kneel before King Jesus because of the mercies of God, they will be saved. But again, this is a question of affection. Do they love their dark deeds too much? Are they willing to risk eternal death to keep those things? Or will they give them up to know the mercies of God in Christ? That question determines whether a person will believe in Jesus or not. But that's not the only factor in whether a person believes. Whether people believe in Jesus is rooted in their nature, their affections, and their motives. Here's the last two blanks in your worship guide. People will not believe in Jesus when they don't want their shame exposed. If you, 
If you don't want your shame exposed, you don't want to come to Jesus. Secondly, people will believe in Jesus if it's their desire for the deeds of darkness in their life to be exposed and eradicated. See the deeds of darkness in your life and you want them exposed and eradicated. And if you want, this is the next part, if you want eternal life to take root in you ASAP. I think it's the first time I've ever had an acrostic uh, in there. People will believe in Jesus if it's their desire, for their deeds, their dark deeds to be exposed and eradicated and for eternal life to take root in them as soon as possible. Look at verses 20 and 21. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and doesn't come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. To be a Christian starts with saying, I am really messed up. Me personally, Pastor Jason, I have shameful things, thoughts. I've done shameful actions. I've done shameful things in my heart. I am jacked up in a really shameful way. I can be so selfish and hateful and self-aggrandizing. If you saw me in these moments, you'd, you'd be sick. You'd be appalled and think, how could you be so rotten? That's me. That's you. That's all of us. And if you can't bring yourself to be honest with yourself and with God and with others about that, you're, you're never going to come to Jesus. You'll never believe. The only way for a person to believe is for them to look honestly at their own deeds and say, I hate this. This is sick. This has got to stop. And I can't stop it. I'm like a dead man who can't keep himself from his rottenness unless you are sick to death of how nasty you are spiritually. How guilty and shameful you are before the law of God, you won't come to Jesus. That motive in our heart has to change. So there's a lot that keeps a person from Jesus or that brings them to faith in Jesus. Whether people believe in Jesus is rooted in their nature, their affections, and their motives. That's a deep theological truth embedded in this conversation with Nicodemus. And next week, we're going to personalize this text much more broadly. But I want to tease out where we're going to take these things next week. Which character are you in this story? Are you the Pharisees who wouldn't come to Jesus at all? No, you're not. I say that with confidence because you're here this morning. You came to Jesus today. So that means you're one of the other two characters. You're either Nicodemus or you're John, the one who wrote this narrative. You're either someone who's not really sure about Jesus, or you're all in. Whether people believe in Jesus is rooted in their nature, affections, and motives. So when you look at yourself, what do you see? What do you see in your nature? When you look at yourself, do you see a person who's been brought from death to life? Has the Holy Spirit made you a new person? Has he given you a new nature? Or are you still driven by your flesh, your desires, your agenda, your urges? What's your nature? What about your affections? What do you love the most? Whom do you love the most? 
Would you give it up? Would you give them up for Jesus? Or are you still in love with your darkness and with the world's way of life? What about your motives? Why'd you come today? Did you come so that you could joyfully have your shame exposed? And so that all the good things in your life could be shown to not come from you at all, but actually from God alone? Have you come so that God could be glorified in your weakness? Or did you come to cover up? Try to cover your shame and your guilt through religiosity, through singing some songs, through going through the motions. That's what Nicodemus was doing. He showed up to make sure he was known for being right. Whether people believe in Jesus is rooted in their nature, their affections, and their motives. So do you believe? Friends, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You will not even see the kingdom of heaven if you have not been born again. So kneel before Jesus. Receive him as Savior and Lord and allow him to revolutionize your life. Pray. Oh God, Holy Spirit, invade this world, this place. Give life where there is death, light where there is darkness. For every man, woman, boy, and girl who's here who does not believe the gospel, who is continuing in the old way toward death, Holy Spirit, call them to yourself powerfully that today they would trust Christ life eternal. Pray this in the name of Jesus.